Please uh, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 126. Psalm 126. And read along with me. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, this psalm, the circumstances that it was written in and the implications, the applications that we can draw from it. Lord, help us to listen, help us to understand, help us to remember, help us to apply your word and these principles that we are about to uh, learn and remember and understand tonight. Please be with me as I preach your word. I pray that my words would be your words and that your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, it's been a few weeks since we had a full evening service. Um, uh, we had uh, the, our New Year's uh, prayer meeting, uh, which was wonderful um, last week, and then um, no evening service for Christmas. And then uh, the week before, we were looking at uh, Psalm 125. And uh, just by way of reminder, um, we're going through the songs of ascents, and uh, these psalms, these songs, were written um, in several different uh, circumstances all throughout Israel's history, and they were written to be sung or recited on the way to uh, Jerusalem or um, during the feasts, the three appointed feasts, or, or could have been sung or, or recited at, at any time. Um, going up to Jerusalem for worship, they were worship psalms. They were psalms, and, and not only um, for worship and to uh, you know gather for the feast and the celebration, whichever one it was, but they were also um, written as ways of reminders and encouragement um, for how God had worked um, in their lives in the history of Israel. And uh, this particular one um, is more along the lines of uh, recounting a sort of revival, a restoration, um, and points to uh, redemption. Um, many have uh, looked at this psalm and have um, compared it to many of the great revivals in history, uh, in church history. Um, especially uh, those um, uh, accompanied with uh, George Whitfield and his preaching. 
Um, but it points to one, and it points to a restoration. And just by reading it, um, in the very first verse, um, you could probably guess that it's talking about the return of the exiles. And that's what, that's what most uh, commentators, it's almost unanimous that that's what it's talking about. Uh, I mean, that the restoration of the people to Israel. And, and I mean... Even though many theologians and pastors would compare this to, to revivals in history, um, it's kind of hard to compare that. Though, yes, this isn't so much of a spiritual revival. It's a national revival. Certainly, there, there may have been some um, Israelites who, in a sense, um, repented and came to faith, um, true faith during that time. Um, but it was a national uh, restoration to the land, it, it, and it was a great restoration, a great redemption. And uh, um, you know, one commentary he talks about this, and he says um, he he agrees that the author and occasion are not named in the psalm, but that's true of almost every psalm. <laughs> uh, every once in a while, you'll see a, a, a superscription uh, that says like a psalm of David, or you know, has some account. But he goes on to say. However, verse 1 points to a time of return from captivity. Most likely, this refers to the Babylonian captivity, from which there were three separate returns. First, under Zerubbabel in Ezra um, chapter 1 to 6, uh, around 538 BC, and then under Ezra in Ezra 7 to 10 in 458 BC, um, and then under Nehemiah, Nehemiah 1 to 2 under uh, 445 BC. And he goes on to say the occasion could be one when the foundation for the second temple had been laid, um, or two when the Feast of Tabernacles was reinstated. This psalm is similar to Psalm 85, which rejoices over Israel's return from Egypt, but contrasts Psalm 137, which laments the pain of the Babylonian captivity. And if you're familiar, um, you know, remember a little bit about Psalm uh, 137. Um, it is a, a lament, and, and there is a, a huge contrast. This is Psalm 137 is that lament um, when they went into exile, um, probably shortly after, by the waters of Babylon. There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And if you remember, you know, even the whole book of Lamentations at the end of Second Chronicles or the end of Second Kings, those historical accounts of the exile of God's judgment. And discipline on his people. It, it was horrendous. And, and that's, that's partly what makes this restoration and redemption so great, is that it came 70 years after this great and horrendous judgment and exile, which even uh, Jeremiah recounts in, in Lamentations that, you know, not only was the city destroyed, burned with fire, crushed, the temple was ransacked, all their riches taken, um, in fact, the, the siege had, had lasted such a long time that um, Jeremiah recounts that the people were, were you know, eating their own waste. 
their own human waste, so to speak, where they had nothing, nothing left. Um, he said women were um, boiling their own young, their babies. There, there was, in a sense, a sort of a cannibalism. There, you know, whatever, it, he's, it was just total depravity. And then when the city was ransacked, you know, like almost any, um, most conquests in history, you know, women raped, children killed, just horrendous depravity. And that's why, you know, Jeremiah writes Lamentations. And you can read about how horrible this um, judgment was, their exile. And even the, the last king was taken out, um, was taken out and his whole family slaughtered in front of him. And some of his, um, his uh, staff, so to speak, um, in his royal court, and then his eyes were put out so that that would be the last thing he would see. This was, this was a great, great judgment. And, and, and likewise, the, the, it's almost like the, the converse is, is true. It, it's such a great restoration. And so this whole psalm, because of how great the, the exile, the judgment was, and, and their return, there, there's great rejoicing all throughout this, this psalm. And it's a psalm of redemption. It's a psalm um, to express the joy of redemption, the joy of restoration. And in this psalm, we particularly see three expressions of those redeemed by God. First, we see the praise of the redeemed, and verses uh, 1 to 3, and then we see the prayer of the redeemed in verse 4, and then in verses 5 and 6, we see the proclamation of the redeemed. But first, the, the praise of the redeemed. It says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. It was just like one of those wild, um, imaginary dreams, but in a good sense, uh, you know, you, you probably um, may remember, maybe not so much the specific details, but I'm sure um, many of you have had those dreams that you wake up that have been so fantastical that, and so just amazing that it's almost mind-blowing. You just wake up and you're kind of jarred a bit. It's just um, a fantasy. And, and this was the restoration was so great that that's how they describe it, like a dream. And, and I, I just want you to see and remember, you, you maybe remember um, certain parts of um, this, if you know your Old Testament, um, but turn with me to Ezra chapter 1. And just by way of reminder, I, I want us to read, um, look back at Ezra chapter 1, it's right after... Uh, right after 2 Chronicles, and, and then um, before Nehemiah. Ezra chapter 1. And it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, 
Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. And, and it's one thing, it's right in the beginning, it says um, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. That, that prophecy um, that they would be exiled for 70 years. Uh, according to you know, what was said in, in Deuteronomy. A couple of prophecies fulfilled and by the mouth of Jeremiah. And exactly then that this uh, pagan king, <laughs> the, the ruler of you know, the world's uh, superpower at the time, um, would not only you know, send them back, but he made an official proclamation to go back. And, and not only did he make an official proclamation, for the Jews to return, but then he also included that everybody in the kingdom should um, help them with goods, with gold, silver, with vessels, with anything they need, and then he provided uh, resources for their trip. It's just it's one thing to let them go, and just that, that's one thing. That's amazing in and of itself, that, this, that Cyrus would let go and say, okay, go back to your homeland and rebuild your temple, um, which, you know, I, some commentators think, uh, and, um, you know, the Babylonians kind of did this as well, and, and, and even, even uh, when Alexander conquered that, um, there, there might have been a religious aspect to, to these people that, okay, well, you know, for those who are um, the pagans or, or that, that worship multiple gods, they, they, they might see a conquered people that they conquered and, and not want to offend their god, though they don't believe in that god. They, they, they might want the conquered people to maintain the temple for the sake of their empire, kind of like a, a, a lucky rabbit's foot, just in case, you know? And, and so there is a sense that, you know, maybe Cyrus could be a little bit sympathetic in, in, in that sense, but... Um, for the most part, it's, it's just God's astounding work. In, in, in change, because not only did he let them go back and, and made the decree, 
but he decreed that resources would be given to them, that the people should help them. And it almost harkens back to what happened in the redemption of Israel from Egypt, that they plundered Egypt. But the Jews didn't even have to ask their neighbors here. It was an official decree. It's, it's just, it's so astounding. And we, we see, you know, what results is an astounding praise for an astonishing restoration. They said, we are like those who dream. Like, how can this be true? This must be a dream. This is crazy. Yes, we understand that we would return, and God said that we would return, but like this? And so much so, I mean, there's one commentator, um, Old Testament scholar Willem van Gemmeren, he writes this in his commentary. He says, the people knew about the promises of restoration you know, from the prophets, but when the actual moment of restoration came, it was an overwhelming experience. They were like those who dream. It all happened too quickly and seemed like a mirage. It was, it was unreal. It was like, you know, some, some people will often explain, uh, uh, um, you know, explain uh, that, that um, something in their life happens, like, you know, say they get married or, and, and it's just a wonderful marriage and honeymoon or, or whatever, and they say, pinch me, I must be dreaming. You know, or some um, vacation that they always wanted or, or maybe, maybe they win the lottery. But, you know, this is, this is nothing close to that. This is far beyond that. This is clearly a work of God. And it's according to the prophets. It's, it's mind-blowing. It's stupefying. It's, and there's, in a sense, um, you know, because this, this is a physical uh, restoration and redemption, but there's a spiritual aspect to this, that the people would go back to their land, that the kingdom, in a sense, would be restored, but not completely. Yet they would go back to the land which God had promised, and, and e- even the discipline, the judgment, lasted exactly how long God, would, God promised, 70 years, and then it'd be over. And it was over, and then he not only brought them back, but he brought them back with riches, with the resources to start to rebuild. And, you know, the, the only, really the only parallel, I mean, it, it's, you can't find another parallel in history. Um, the, only, the only other parallel, really, it would um, probably be in, um, in Scripture, in Acts. There's, there's this, this account of Peter when he is rescued um, out of prison. And it's just interesting because it's very similar. Though it's, you know, the Jews' restoration was on a corporate national level, and then Peter's rescue is on an individual level. But turn with me to Acts 12 and just read along here, and we can kind of get the idea of what had happened and how the people felt. Um, you think, you know, because just in the midst of persecution, the church is growing, and, and, 
and the apostles are preaching, and, and the disciples are preaching. And, and then it says, at that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And, then, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the Angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out. And went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am assured that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all, the Jewish, and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And, and it's, like, it's like a dream to him. And even so much so that when he goes to um, the disciples and he, he knocks on the door and, and, and he there's a servant girl, uh, Rhoda, that recognizes him, and, and, and she goes, tells everybody else, and they're like, no, no, it can't be Peter. That couldn't have happened. And, and this story is so fantastical. It's so amazing um, that it was unbelievable. And, and there's a sense that, you know, this is what was happening to the Jews. This is, you know, their escape. It, it's as if... Um, the angel or an angel opened up the, the, the gate to the prison in, in, in uh, Babylon and just let them go. And not only let them go, but led them out and led them out with riches. And, and it, it's, it's like a dream. It's mind-blowing. It's, it's, it's almost stupefying. You, you, you think of... Um, you know, it, it likens back to our spiritual redemption, in a sense. And that, that's, that's probably one of the, the main applications of this whole psalm for us. Is to, because redemption throughout the Bible, and the, 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 the redemption of the Israelites from, from Egypt and from Babylon, it, 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 it foreshadows an even greater redemption, a greater spiritual redemption, or, or a greater spiritual restoration and I think, you know, some of us had, you know, some, some great testimonies, some Damascus Road type, you know, uh, salvation experiences. Some, some of us not so much. It was just, um, it was an experience, but, but not amazing um, like others. And sometimes we, we hear about those testimonies. I remember one, um, one uh, evangelist speaking about how he was going out to uh, just a college campus and, and just totally secular 
environment and, and um, you know, this area where there's all these college kids and, and he's, he's um, sharing the gospel and, and he sees, like, yeah, there's, there's someone responding, but not, not just responding, but he, he sees him get converted because of the way his responses were, it was so mind-blowing and stupefying to him that, that he's just like, the, the, the young man is just blown away and he's like, well, wait a minute. That means that everything I was taught was wrong about the world. That means, like, so you're, like evolution is wrong and he goes on and on and the the evangelist almost has to slow him slow him down and be like just just wait a minute just you know let's get back to basics and and just you know we'll get there (laughs) you know we'll get there but and he's just like he he has to take a step back and he's just like get his senses back because it's almost like his head is spinning and for some of us I I mean I I remember a, a similar salvation experience it's like so, like, you know, everything I thought about the world is pretty much wrong. Now I see things for how they really are. It, this is, you know, spiritually what, you know, the, the physical redemption is, is in restoration in the Bible of, you know, the Jews from Egypt and Babylon is, is foreshadowing. That God would bring an even greater restoration, a greater redemption. And it just shows us just how great our Redeemer is. And we should have astounding praise for an astonishing restoration. This is what the Jews had. They were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And so we see not only that there's astounding praise for an astonishing restoration, but that the greatly redeemed respond with great rejoicing. They respond with great rejoicing, with shouts of joy, with laughter. And this is not laughter like, you know, like you hear a joke or you see something funny. This is that laughter that's just like, really? <laughs> like, that, like that really happened? Like not only are we going back home, not only are we being restored, but we're, giving, we're being given money to go and riches to go. And then all the, the, um, the implements, all, all the, the basins and, and uh, the menorah, everything within the temple is, is going with us. It's, it's, it's not just a full restoration, but it's an additional. There, there's, there's more coming from this world empire to help them. It, it's, it's a sudden change in circumstances and status and, and wealth. It, it, this is a great redemption. And, and, and because it's so great, they, you know, not only do they have shouts of joy, not only are, is their mouth filled with laughter, but it goes on and says, you know, then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. This spreads to the nations. And so it's not just that the greatly redeemed respond with great rejoicing, but the, a great redemption results in great reports. 
That, that this is something to see, even probably amongst their, you know, their enemies. That even, even their enemies, their cultural or spiritual or religious enemies, the pagans around them can be like, whoa, what just happened there? Like they're coming back, and not only are they coming back, they're rebuilding. And, and yeah, initially, as we read in Ezra 1, that there, there was this official decree, this official word that was um, spread throughout the empire, or at least in that, that region, around, um, you know, around uh, Persia, uh, the Fertile Crescent, that, that area around, you know, uh, Nineveh and Babylon that, where, where they were exiled, that the word was spreading officially, but then it was soon spreading uh, locally amongst them, where, where they would go. And, and certainly this, this is a... This is a long trek. You know, it's approximately, depending on what region of uh, Babylon and Persia that they were um, exiled to and settled in, uh, you know, the, the, the trip back was approximately five to 600 miles or so. And, you know, who knows, uh, perhaps hundreds of thousands, Jews coming back, caravans, all the... Um, stuff, all the gold coming with them. And, and, and yes, as, as we, we've seen in, in Ezra and in different parts of the Old Testament, they came in waves. There was three official waves. But nonetheless, this, there was a great report among the nations. They're saying, the Lord has done great things for them. And they even knew that this was such a great restoration, such a great redemption, that they, they had to say that the Lord did this. Once again, this, this goes back to, in a sense, goes back to the redemption um, in Egypt, from Egypt, that, you know, that, that was an event that would um, characterize the nation. It would be part of the nation's uh, history and lore and, and identity throughout their whole time. And, and then even more, um, this... Uh, restoration, redemption from, from their exile. But, you know, it, it makes me think of, of one such passage and, and the reports that were heard um, when the people were about to come into the land and were about to um, uh, uh, be led in the conquest of Israel by Joshua. And in, in the beginning of Joshua, we hear this report by Rahab when the, when the spies come in. And, and it's interesting what she said. As she's, the, the spies are coming in and they're spying out Jericho before the battle and, and uh, they, they, um, they sneak in, Rahab takes them in and, and, and she has to hide them on the roof. And in, in Joshua 2 and verse 8, it says this, it says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, 
And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. It's like they, they, in a sense, believed God. That this was a work of God. Though, though they didn't come to true faith and true belief, we, we see that Rahab would. And, and Rahab would, essentially, she would come into the line of the Messiah. You know, uh, but just this report. I mean, first and foremost, that this is 40 years later, and, and she is still recounting the redemption from Israel and the miracles, and, and then what they recently did to, to the Amorites. And the, the word spread, it not only spread, but, you know, it remained um, as, in a sense, a, almost like a legend but a true legend of, of what God had done. And, and it was, as she, as she recounted, terrifying to the people. But nonetheless, they knew that God did a work through them. And, and this, is, this is similar, but in a, in a more positive sense, that the nations, the nations even had to admit that the Lord has done great things for them. Though they weren't, Perhaps they were terrified. We, we don't know. The psalm doesn't say. But it, it, it looks more uh, along the lines of they were even happy and glad and excited for the Israelites. It could have gone either way. E- either the nations and the people around them were either excited or, or they were terrified or they were upset. But either way, they knew it was the Lord. They knew something great had happened. They knew that this was a great redemption. Alan Ross, in his commentary, he writes this. He says, The New Testament uses the redemption of Israel from Egypt and later from Babylon to illustrate our spiritual redemption. After all, it was a deliverance from the bondage of the world by the grace of God through the forgiveness of sins. And this is a historical psalm. This is a historical account. This is true history. There is... uh, a sense of enthusiasm and excitement. But there's also a sense that it's foreshadowing and looking forward and explaining a a, a greater redemption in Christ, a greater spiritual redemption. That this is how we should react. This is how we should respond with great joy, with with shouts of, of joy and, and our mouth filled with laughter. With that exclamation that the Lord has done great things for them or for us. That a great redemption results in great reports. The greatly redeemed respond with great rejoicing. The but the greatly redeemed also express great recognition and gratitude. Verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. That, that, that should be our attitude, our response for the rest of our lives. As we think about our salvation, as, as we think about what He has done for us. And this was their, their response, their, their recognition that it was the Lord that had done it. And, and they were glad. They, they had gratitude. 
They were thankful. They rejoiced. But they, they knew the Lord had done it, not just because of the way in which it happened and in, in, in that the, the, the king had um, let them go and had given them the resources and had decreed that the rest of the people in the empire would support their, their return. But they knew the Lord had done it because this was prophesied. It, it was not just prophesied in, by, by Jeremiah and and even in, in the law, that they would be exiled for 70 years in return. But this was specifically prophesied by Isaiah. You turn to Isaiah chapter 44, and, and, and we can see this. Isaiah chapter 44, and at the end of um, chapter 44, we, we read this in, in, uh, in verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. He goes on, he talks about how he's using Cyrus. And this was written probably a few hundred years before. And so it's astounding that you know, there's many, and it's sad to say, it's not just the liberal theologians, but some that are... Um, you know, a little bit more, you know, conservative, might, might question, you know, a little bit about the dating of Isaiah because of how precise this prophecy is, that he names Cyrus by name. Several, um, you know, liberal theologians would, would say, well, you know, Isaiah, the, the, you know, the second half couldn't have been written until, you know, after the exiles return because he names them. And it's like, well, that's why they call it prophecy. <laughs> because it's prophecy. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's so specific. And certainly the Jews knew a little bit about, you know, all these prophecies. Yes, you know, they, they did not have not every Jew had a written copy, but there were scrolls. There, there was the word. It was um, available to some, especially the, you know, some of the more the the leaders, some of the prophets. They, they, they would know about these prophecies, and, and certainly it would spread amongst the people. And so they, they, they knew that all this was done by the Lord. It was prophesied. Um, it was providential. 
it was certainly his work, so much so that not only the Jews knew, but the, the nations, the, um, the pagans, the unbelievers around them knew that the Lord has done great things for them. Derek Kidner, uh, Old Testament scholar, he writes this. He says, says, it was like a dream, delirious happiness and relief, such as the mood recaptured in the first half of the song. But now it is only a memory, and the psalm turns into prayer for a comparable transformation of a barren and cheerless scene. And that gets to our, our, our second point, uh, the second expression in a sense of the redeemed is the prayer of the redeemed. Because though it, it, it is a great redemption and a great restoration, as they come back into the land, a land that, you know, soon after the judgment and the destruction uh, of the Assyrians, of all the cities, the destruction of Jerusalem, um, how they ransacked, the, in a sense, the whole nation, took people exile. Uh, farms, villages were, were left uninhabited, emptied. And, and as, as uh, uh, God told them in Deuteronomy that the, the land would spew them out and it, it would um, require time to heal. And so um, places which were once uh, cultivated farm fields and vineyards were overgrown with weeds and brushes and bushes and, and trees and and thorns and thistles and all sorts of things like that. And so they, though they have this great redemption, this great restoration, when they come back into the land, they have to get to work. They have to get to work. And certainly there, there probably is some excitement, but that excitement soon turns to prayer that they see the work that lies before them. And so they, they say, um, the psalmist says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. And, and that, you know, that area, the Negev, that's the southern portion of Israel that, that goes down into, um, in a sense, in, it touches the Sinai Peninsula. That, that southern part that's, that's mostly just desert. Um, there is some grassland, but there's not much that you could grow there. Um, you could graze some sheep on the barren um, grasslands or, or the, the, the brown grass. But yet, in, when, when the rainy season comes, when they do get rain, which is rare, and, but in that area, it's, it's just like in, the, in any desert that when it does get rain, it, it floods, it creates, it goes down wadis, it, it, it sweeps stuff away, but then there is some vegetation that sprouts up. There's life. There's life in a barren wasteland. And so that, this is what the psalmist prays for. Restore our for, fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev, that, that we could see this barren land restored and be fruitful once again. And essentially what they're praying for is, is a restoration of the kingdom, to restore the kingdom, to bring this, this uh, physical restoration of, of the people to the land, to um, rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild 
the towns and villages and, and the vineyards and the fields to start to cultivate this land once again, to make it fruitful. Willem Van Gemeren, once again, he writes this. He says, The returnee's prayer reflects on the harshness of their existence and on the disappointment with the limited fulfillment of the prophetic word. Though they were restored, nature was not smiling kindly on the people. They pray for a continuation of the restoration, restoration of their well-being in the land. And how he said, he said that this is a limited fulfillment of the prophetic word, and that kind of points to several prophecies. Um, one such is in Amos 9 and, and verses 13 to 15, which kind of links this restoration, kind of, in a sense, mostly points towards the millennial kingdom and the, the future restoration. But um, as with prophecy, that's usually what, what happens. A lot of prophecies... Um, and even the Messiah, the prophecies of Jesus Christ, a, a lot of um, those prophecies are so closely linked with the, the first coming and the second coming that many of the Jews, um, they were confused when Jesus came. And, and for the most part, it was the hardness of their hearts. But yet, you know, we, we, have, the, uh, we have the advantage of looking back in time and, and and seeing uh, the fulfilled prophecies in the New Testament, and just greater revelation that, that further um, elaborates on um, Old Testament prophecy. But sometimes we, you know, some of the Old Testament prophecies, it, it's kind of, we have a, a near fulfillment, and then a later future fulfillment that's yet to be, um, yet to happen that will once happen in the millennial kingdom. And so there, there is a sense where uh, some of the exiles returning are, are asking for this full um, restoration, this, this complete fulfillment that some of the prophets spoke of, but yet would not come until the millennial kingdom. But yet they pray, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Is another commentator, he, he writes and he says, the psalmist prays for a flood of returning exiles like the seasonal torrents that fill normally dry streams in the desert. And, and many um, theologians, many pastors would, would see this, not just as this, this prayer in verse 4, not just as a, a prayer for uh, physical fortunes, for agricultural fortunes, like the streams uh, in the Negev, like a uh, a well-watered plain or well-watered fields, but they see this as a prayer for more exiles, more of the people. As they came in waves, um, more helpers, more harvesters to come into the, the fields, to work the fields, more people to, uh, to come and to inhabit the land. What? They want the, the land to not only be fruitful, but they want the people to be prosperous. That all the people would come in and would enjoy the land, would enjoy the riches of the land. And this is, once again, prophesied in, in Isaiah, all the, most of the prophets. Isaiah chapter 35. 
says this, verse 4, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like, like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. It's interesting, they, 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 they remember this. Streams in the desert, but yet what Isaiah is pointing to is a greater spiritual restoration, a greater spiritual redemption that even as he said, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute sing for joy, which we see fulfilled in Jesus is what he would do. But nonetheless, they're looking for these waters to come forth in the wilderness, the streams in the desert, that, that God would bring these waters to restore their fortunes, to restore the kingdom, and, and to, in a sense, you know, they're probably looking back to the golden age of Solomon. Lord, make the kingdom like that. Yes, you've you know, restored us and we're thankful and we're glad and we rejoice, but now they're back and they have to get back to work and they're praying for a full restoration. Isaiah would go on in chapter 43 and he says this, um, his prophecy to the people in exile, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. And certainly the people are thinking about this. Water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Restore us. But once again, this is a partial Fulfillment, the, the full future fulfillment would come later. First, uh, when Jesus comes, but then later in the millennial kingdom. Alan Ross, in his commentary, he writes this. He says, The psalmist prays that the Lord restore to the land others who were still in captivity. The concern is like the evangelistic concern of the church, except that the psalmist is praying for people who are in the covenant to be prompted to return to the land to do the work of God. The desire is that they too will catch the vision that the future of God's program is in Israel, not in captivity in a foreign land. Back, you know, to God's promises to Abraham, that he would give them, he would give Abraham a land and a people, that, that they were at the center of God's program of redemption, his his program of um, salvation, his, his plan for the whole world, for all the peoples, that they knew that they were in the center of that. They, they, they knew that they were God's chosen people. That there was a kingdom, and that kingdom would come. Yet all throughout um, Old Testament history, we, we see their, their sinfulness, their turning to idolatry, but every once in a while we get these glimpses of hope, either in uh, David or in Solomon, 
and throughout the prophets talking about the Messiah or full restoration or full salvation or streams in the desert. And so they, they pray for that. They pray that God would um, bring full restoration, full redemption, full prosperity, that he would bring in the kingdom in a sense and bring all the people into the land. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Make this, make this barren land fruitful once again. And so in this psalm, we see first the praise of the redeemed in verses 1 to 3, and then the prayer of the redeemed to restore the kingdom, to revitalize the kingdom. And now we see the proclamation of the redeemed in verses 5 to 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And it's interesting that some of you who have been in church and, um, much longer than I have, um, you, you may um, know this, but I, I didn't know this until I, I first started um, studying for this passage, that there were songs about that um, that have been written about those last two verses, and more along the lines of evangelistic um, church camp songs that would sing about bringing in the sheaves, um, shouts of joy, um, talking about um, more along the lines of an outreach, um, outreach events, uh, evangelistic campaigns, uh, just to encourage people to evangelize, to share the gospel, to, um, that they would um, bring, they would come home with shouts of joy, bringing their sheaves with them. And certainly this, this uh, looks forward to that, but it, it starts with uh, more of that natural um, physical um, uh, application to the Israelites, that, that they were to come into the land. And as they came back to the land and had to um, restore it, to, to plant seed, to um, cultivate the fields once again, to, um, to settle down, to rebuild their houses, that, that there was, in a sense, tears. There was a sadness. And, um, you know, we, we read in, uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah, there's, there's um, some instances where um, they talk about the, the older generation, those who have seen the temple in its former glory. And there may have been a, a handful of older Israelites who remembered the land. And certainly there, there was probably some tears but, but even for the younger uh, generation to, to hear stories of Jerusalem and of Israel and just to know that they were in exile because of their own sin, because of God's judgment. As they sow, it's, it's with sadness, with, with tears, but there, there's also probably a, a bittersweet type of um, attitude. Because they, they, they know, they see the barren land, they see all the work that's before them, the things that they have to do. They, they know it's because of their sin and their, their tears, but yet at the sense, there's also a sense that they, they know that God is, has redeemed them. He has saved them. And uh, so 
the psalmist writes these two verses as kind of a, an encouragement for those who are in tears, who are weeping, to, to continue with the work, to continue uh, cultivating the land. Alan Ross, once again, he writes this. He says, the principle recorded in these last two verses encourage the people who are praying for the full restoration of the captivity to persevere in their efforts. No doubt the people who first returned found agriculture difficult in a land that had not been worked for decades. But they knew that perseverance would eventually bring a harvest. But these verses are joined with the prayer of verse 4. We know that the psalmist's concern was not with a harvest of wheat, but people. Therefore, the entire two-verse section is figurative. But I, 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 would, I wouldn't agree entirely. I, I think there is some literal um, application of, of them sowing the fields, but there's also a sense that this is a, a figurative and, and, and desiring a, a full restoration of, of people to come back, to be prosperous. It, it makes me think of, you know, when... I was, when I had the opportunity to go to Israel and, and I learned about the kibbutz movement after World War II and, and all these Jews, either Holocaust survivors or, or maybe they were Jews who had lived in other lands. There, there was many American Jews who, and many other Jews in other lands that went, were moving to Israel and, and making a, a kibbutz uh, and and just, um, in a sense, homesteading, um, cultivating this land. And it's kind of the, the, the same um, attitude that was, was with them, that, that they're, they're back in the land. Israel is a state. It's a nation. It's restored. It's a legitimate nation, recognized. And, and it's, it's, in a sense, up to them to restore it to its, um, its glory. That's how they felt though many of them were, were not true believers. And, and certainly, you know, as this psalm, I, I'm sure that some of them read this psalm. That they were, they were, they were um, sowing in tears. They were working hard, and, and, and yet they knew that there would be joy. There would be joy. As the Jews returned to their land and were brought back, certainly there's this brokenness. This, this seeing the land, seeing what had happened. And, and yet there's, there's something about, you know, growing your own food on your own land. As uncultivated as the land may be and as meager as the crops may yield, there's, there's something about growing your own food on your own land. There is that joy. You may you know, hear about it as someone who's a brand new farmer or, or not even a farmer, but just starts gardening again. And they're like, look, I, I grew potatoes. <laughs> it's like tiny little things, but <laughs> they're like trying to cook something out of it. But they're like, but I, I grew them. <laughs> like, and and there is, there's this sense that, you know what? It's hard work, but it's going to pay off. But even more so that, you know, this is our land, and not just our land, but that 
It was our land that was promised by God. And we're back in. And so just persevere. Keep at it. God rewards. He, 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 he rewards his humble slaves and he revives his contrite servants. This is the proclamation of the redeemed that, that God will bring full restoration. Just keep at it. Keep pushing. Keep on keeping on. And all throughout this psalm, we see this, this praise, this joy, but there's also this hope. This hope that though things aren't exactly what they should be, we have been restored. We have been redeemed. And, and that's you know, really the, the, the main application for us that, that yeah, we, we, we still struggle with sin. We still live in a sin-cursed world. We still stumble and fall. We, we, we don't obey as we should. We don't do everything that we should do, but we're, we're redeemed. We're restored. We're forgiven. We have new life. God has done a work in us. He has brought us into His kingdom, and, and though we do not live in, in the kingdom, in a sense, the kingdom is not here. It's coming. It will come. It will be restored. You know, this, this sense of sowing and reaping. You know, it, it's, it's not just you know, here in this psalm. It's throughout the Old Testament. It's, it's in the New Testament as well. It, it, it made me think of, of this, this, uh, this verse in, cha- in Mark chapter 4 that, uh, talking about you know, as, as Jesus is giving these parables of the kingdom, and, and there's this parable of the soils, but then later on, he, after he shares this parable of the soils in Mark chapter 4, he's, he says this, concerning the kingdom of God, he says, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. The earth produces it by itself, first the blade, then the air, then the full grain in the air. But when the grain is ripe, he, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And what Jesus is, is getting at here in this, this parable is that salvation is a work of God. But at the same time, he uses us. He uses, he uses his people to proclaim his word, to, to sow the seed. And, and even as... You know, he brought his people back into the land. They were responsible to sow the seed, to recultivate the land, to work the land. He promised them the land. He returned them to the land. He's going to restore the land. He's going to bring back in his kingdom. But until that time, we have work to do. There's kingdom work to do. He has called us into his kingdom. We're kingdom citizens, but there's kingdom work for us to do. It's interesting that, you know, even as I read, you know, the, the beginning of this psalm, and it says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And, you know, we spoke about salvation and those great salvation experiences that um, 
some people have and, and this joy. And then you think of sowing the seed. And it's interesting that, you know, I, I think sometimes the, the greatest evangelists and usually the most zealous are those who have been recently converted. Because they, they remember that redemption. They remember how great that redemption was. And, and yes, they, they, they don't know everything, but they remember what happened. They remember their restoration. They remember um, how they were redeemed from the slave market of sin. How God had done a great work in them. And so they go out sowing the seed. They, they're, they're zealous for kingdom work, even though they don't know all the ins and outs and, and details of, of how to do the kingdom work. They're ready to work. They know that that God has done a work in him, in them, and he has redeemed them for good works. And, and this is the main application for us. That God has given us a great restoration, a great redemption, greater than what had happened to the Israelite. Though they could see it, and it was physical, and, and they could touch it, and in a sense, the land, they could touch the resources that they came back with. Our restoration, our redemption is, is profoundly greater than theirs. And this is, this is a, the application for us to remember what God had done for us in redeeming us. And, and because he has redeemed us, we should have joy and we should go out sowing. Even if there's tears from our struggles with sin or there's tears from opposition or there's, there's tears from uh, persecution, we should remember that there will be uh, reaping. There will be shouts of joy. And one day Christ will return and bring full restoration to this earth, full redemption. He will set up his kingdom and we will... Um, rejoice when he comes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for the reminders. And Lord, we must confess that we don't always respond the way we should to our salvation. And oftentimes we, we just we become too familiar with holy things. We become complacent and, and sad to say that some of us even become apathetic. We um, ebb and flow in our spiritual life. We are at, oftentimes at low points and high points, and um, we are fickle. We forget. Lord, help us to remember our salvation. Help us to remember the great redemption that you have um, done in our lives in saving us from sin and help us to um, be about your kingdom, to proclaim your gospel, to live um, in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.